going to do something a little different today. Take out your Bible. I believe I'm preaching on the longest text on a Sunday morning I've ever preached on. Okay? Two chapters. Now, never fear the message. It wrapped up in time this morning, early service. But it's a long text. Uh, I'm going to read chapter 27 at this time and then chapter 28 when I get up at the message time. So would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Uh, Acts chapter 27. We're going to be looking this morning at the topic, a captured life. A captured life. Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andromitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Pay close attention to the narrative because we're not going to have time to go back over some of these details. But I want you to notice some of the things that are said. Putting out to sea from, from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia... In Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter struck down uh, from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. 
Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred uh, this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the uh, vessel aground. The bow struck and remained unmovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion... Wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Find uh, Acts chapter 28 now. And uh, we are going to take uh, Paul quite literally in 1 Timothy 4 when he told Timothy, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. A lot of Scripture reading this morning, but uh, hang on, the message will move quickly, and I can guarantee you when we get to about point uh, three in the message, it's going to be a lot, a lot, a lot of personal application okay some of you since Friday are expecting me this morning to go a different direction a direction that I went about six weeks ago 
I, I told you then uh, Friday's decision was probably coming. It's not a surprise to us, okay? Now let me address that just a minute before we begin with the message this morning. Uh, and I certainly realize that I am on the wrong side of public opinion or the courts. But kind of like Martin Luther said back in the Reformation when he was speaking of the Word of God, here I am, I take my stand, I can do no other. My role as a shepherd and a teacher of the flock is to teach you the Word of God. God has given a very clear word on what has happened. Uh, we love people, we respect people, it does not mean we endorse sin. Okay? And the tragic thing is the court's decision is going to, for some people in their minds, legitimize sin when a higher court has already spoken. Okay? And we know the higher court will have the last word. Paul's very clear in the book of Romans. Book of Romans chapter 1 divides into two halves. First half up to verse 17. Especially verses 14 to 17. Here's what happens when you embrace the word of God. When you embrace the word of God, it results in salvation. And then as he says in verse 17, those saved, the just, will live by faith. Beginning in verse 18 down through verse 32, he describes those who reject God's truth and suppress it. And three times he says, God gives them over, God gives them over, God gives them over. And one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the activities he specifically mentions is same-sex relationships. That when you see that, it is, you can know it is a fruit of unbelief, a fruit of those who have rejected the truth of God. And who don't know God. Those who celebrate it, endorse it, and participate in it. Now folks, that's what Romans 1 teaches us. And Paul says, when that happens, we're already under the wrath of God. It's not just eschatological out there in the future somewhere. When these things go on in the culture, it is an indication, Paul says... That the wrath of God, the judgment of God is already being poured out on unbelief. So disappointing. Disappointing because of the lives that tragically from Friday are going to hear legitimacy when God's word does not legitimize it. So we need to pray for those that I think are going to be led further astray through this decision. Sermon number one. Now let's get on to the sermon for the day. Stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 28. A captured life. A captured life. He writes, And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people 
Now, and your translation may say barbarian. That's an onomata poetic word. You say, what's that? Uh, it's a word like our English word hiccup. The word hiccup, when somebody hiccups, it sounds like the word hiccup. Barbarian, ba 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 ba. It's like people who would babble, people who were non Greeks, barbarians, showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him healed him. And when this had taken place the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever was needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. You can't help but read that phrase and think of Acts 1.8, right? Finally, Paul has come to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews and when they had gathered he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against." When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. 
The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of the gospel. May our lives be lived as those who have been captured by your grace. Lord, encourage our witness through the text we will look at today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I'm going to try to bring the book of Acts to a close. And I was trying to figure out how to divide these two chapters up, but it's the same, it's, it's, it's the same event. It's one, one unit in Scripture. And so that's why we look at both chapters together. Now I do want to mention to you there's material in the last chapters of this book that, I, that I've not covered. And I told you up front we wouldn't cover every passage. You'll notice that we skip chapter 26. Now the reason we skip chapter 26 because Paul in chapter 26 is once again giving a defense of his faith and he's sharing his testimony before the authorities. We've already seen Paul do that. We've looked at a passage not identical but similar to chapter 26. We covered the same themes. And so passages like that I have skipped. Let me also say as I've studied the commentaries, I am grateful for the tremendous works on the book of Acts. And I would encourage you, I would strongly encourage you to get some of these resources I've given to you here. And, and do a more thorough study of the book of Acts on your own. I want to point out also in this last message I so appreciate Dr. James Boyce uh, exposition and some of his exposition will come out in the message this morning. I love the way Luke ends the book of Acts with the word unhindered. Paul was preaching Jesus unhindered and it is a reminder to us that our lives and abilities may have limitations due to our circumstances at any given time but the word of God is not chained. Aren't you glad of that? Whatever your circumstances are, the word of God is not chained. It's not limited. And as it goes out, it continues to transform lives today. Now this morning as we get into the text, I want to re remind you also of the context. What are these last chapters of the book of Acts all about? You will recall Paul has appealed his case to Caesar. Paul appeared before lesser Roman authorities who ruled over the land of Israel. 
And every single one of those lesser authorities, just like in the case with Jesus, they gave a pronouncement. They said, we can find no basis for a charge against this man. And they were, for their part, they were ready to set him free. And the Jews continued to stir up mobs. The authorities said, Paul, go back to Jerusalem and all these charges stand before the Jews, stand before their authorities and their courts and answer to these charges. Well, Paul didn't do that because he knew that would be a sure death sentence for him. And so Paul did what any Roman citizen at that time had the right to do. You could appeal your case to Caesar. Paul is simply being a Roman citizen using the law lawfully. He's appealing his case to Caesar. And so he's being loaded on a ship and taken to Rome so he can stand before Caesar. Today, folks, we're going to see a man that, who was a person who'd been captured by men, but most importantly, he lived his life as one who was captured by God. Captured by the grace of God. And we're going to see that inside of the will of God is the safest place for a person to be. It doesn't mean that circumstances will always be to your liking. But it does mean that if God has something for you to do, He will be with you and He will help you to accomplish that. The safest place for a child of God is inside of the will of God. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is a Christian under divine commission. Now in your mind, I want you to think with me all the way back to chapter 23 and verse 11. Back in 23 verse 11, God had appeared to Paul one night and given him an assurance. Paul, even as you have testified of me here, you are also going to testify of me and be a witness of Christ there in Rome. We see that because of Paul's divine commission from God to testify in Rome, Paul was also under divine protection. Again, the safest place to be for a child of God is in the will of God. Now all through this storyline you will see Paul being shown favor because God's hand was on him. Don't miss that. At every turn of this journey, God's hand is on his life. Verse 1 has them placing Paul along with the other prisoners on a ship and they're about to begin their voyage to Rome. Verse 3 says that the centurion Julius treated Paul kindly. And astonishingly at their first port that they went into, He allowed Paul, a prisoner going on the the way to Rome with other prisoners, he released Paul temporarily to go and see his friends there so his friends could minister to him and supply some of his needs. Folks, that is amazing that a centurion would do that. But it shows the level of degree to which Julius had come to trust and respect the apostle Paul. Again, Paul is right where God wants him. 
God is engineering this whole entire narrative in a beautiful way. The second thing I want you to see this morning, a Christian being a blessing and encouragement. Not only did Paul himself receive God's promise of protection, but all of those around Paul were blessed by him as well, and they were promised protection. Oftentimes, unbelievers are blessed by the presence of believers. Do you realize that? Believers can be a blessing to unbelievers. That is not a strange theme in the Word of God. I'll give you two cases in point. Remember Abraham when God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham immediately began to intercede for those cities. And God listened to Abraham's intercession. And God said, Abraham, if there are even ten righteous found in those cities, because you have pleaded with me on their behalf, I will not destroy them. Well, ten couldn't be found, and so God ended up destroying them. But the point is, a believer, Abraham, could have been a great blessing to, that, to those places had there been ten righteous in it. And then the classic example, of course, would be the life of Joseph in Egypt. Remember, God had begun to appear to Joseph in dreams and speak to Joseph through dreams. And God had given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. That's one of the ways in the Old Testament that God communicated with people before they had the Scripture. Well, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers while he was in prison, God allowed him to interpret two dreams. And then God engineered circumstances in such a way that Joseph appeared before Pharaoh and interpreted his dreams. Now, Pharaoh's dreams had to do with a famine that was going to come on the whole region. And because of the gift that God gave to Joseph, Pharaoh recognized that Joseph was the man who was able to save the land from famine. And so he made Joseph the prime minister, and Joseph immediately went to work storing up grain in the good years, preparing the, preparing the people for the bad years that were to come. And so the Egyptians, unbelievers, and everybody else in that area, they were saved from the famine because of the activity of one believer named Joseph. And so it's not uncommon in Scripture to see how God uses believers to be a blessing to unbelievers, even if the unbelievers don't recognize it at the time. I think of that classic verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14 where God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You hear what God is saying? God is saying if God's people will get right, it will be a blessing to the whole entire land. Paul uses that also as an analogy in 1 Corinthians 7 when it comes to marriage. He says if you're in a marriage where you're unequally yoked, you're married to an unbeliever, if at all possible, stay in that marriage because by staying in that marriage, your witness can have a sanctifying effect on the children. Well, verse 10, Paul advises them all against travel. It's the day after atonement. 
Uh, It's it's after, uh, I should say, a period of time after the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, which would have been late September to early October. It's after that period of time. And sea travel in the Mediterranean in the fall and winter months was known to be very dangerous. In fact, most ship's captains would pull their vessel into a port and they would winter there. They knew what the Mediterranean could be like in the winter. But Julius takes the advice of the ship's captain over Paul and so they set sail again. Now the first really big storm they got into, they had to end up lowering the mainmast and cutting the anchors loose. The storm knocks them off course, drives them southward. It's so bad that they had to start throwing cargo overboard to lighten the ship so hopefully it would stay afloat on top of the water. Also, sailors depended in ancient times on the heavenly bodies above them to help them keep on course. They would look at the stars and they would look at the constellations and use those to navigate. But the Bible says here, the sky was so dark and so overcast, they lost this ability. And so here they are, they're adrift in the middle of the Mediterranean. They've been without food for a period of time. And the text says in verse 20, what happened? They all began to lose hope. They began to lose hope. Now in that context, Paul stands up and makes a speech. Most commentators point out that the purpose of Paul's speech was not so Paul could say, See, nanny, 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 I told you so. That wasn't the point. Essentially what God is doing is establishing Paul's authority. God is using all of this to point out that Paul really does know what he's talking about because God is directing him. The sovereign God of the universe is directing this man. He is somebody that little by little those in authority are beginning to understand they need to listen to, they need to respect him. That's the purpose of this speech. Now notice what Paul relates to them. An angel has appeared to him and once again assured him, you will stand before Caesar and testify. Obvious, the reason these were words of comfort, obviously you can't stand before Caesar and testify if you and all of your fellow travelers are drowned and laying on the bottom of the Mediterranean. Well, additionally, Paul tells them that the angel related that everybody traveling with him was going to be kept safe as well. He even relates how the angel has told him they're going to run aground on an island, something that happens in the very next section. And so God's word to them through Paul is very, very specific. Again, Paul's trustworthiness is being established. This is a man that we're to see has God's hand on his life. God's favor is on Paul's life. Just as Paul had indicated, the sailors sense they're coming to land. They take readings and the ocean's depth is becoming less and less indicating that they are indeed approaching land. And so the sailors decide that they're going to lower the lifeboat down And they're going to escape. They're going to leave all the prisoners and the soldiers behind. They're going to escape and get away. Paul warns the soldiers what the sailors are doing. The soldiers cut away the lifeboat. Paul's life was a testimony to these people on the ship. 
the leaders on the ship have by now begun to listen to this man. Notice in verses 33 and following, Paul addresses them all again and the Bible says they're encouraged. They believe him that not a single one of them is going to lose his life. When the ship gets close to land and gets uh, lodged in the reef and stuck and the waves are, are busting against the back of the ship, the stern of the ship and tearing it apart, the soldiers decide they're going to kill all the prisoners. But again, Julius steps in and prevents this because if they kill all the prisoners Paul would be one of those to be put to death they all jump overboard and make it to land safely now folks there is an amazing contrast going on here here are sailors that this is what they did for their livelihood they sailed around the world back then how many storms do you think these guys had been called in probably numerous storms but this particular storm has these sailors these experienced sailors scared to death and the soldiers are scared to death soldiers Roman soldiers who normally wouldn't have been afraid in any circumstance all these people are scared to death and here's God's man, here's a preacher man, and he is at perfect peace. Isn't that great? He's in God's will, going through storms, and he's at perfect peace. And because of that, you know what his life becomes? His life becomes salt and light to all of those who are with him. His life becomes a great source of blessing and encouragement to everybody around him. Third thing I want you to see, a Christian at peace. As Boyce points out, we may not be in the midst of a literal storm like the Apostle Paul, but we do go through other kinds of storms. One day we are in perfect health and suddenly we experience pain or sickness. And we go to the doctor and he runs all of his tests and he says, uh-oh, I've got some bad news for you. Some of you have been in a storm like that. Some of you are in one like that right now. Some of you have faced another kind of storm. Or you know somebody who has like neighbors of mine growing up in Charlotte. Saturday night. Next day was Father's Day. This is back in about 1974. My parents had been out with the Morgans. That Saturday evening, come in at about 11 or 12 o'clock that Saturday night or in, in Father's Day Sunday morning, the Morgans got a knock on their door from high, North Carolina State Highway Patrolman. Their 20-year-old son, Dave, and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Marie, had taken the family sailboat, gone to another part of the state of North Carolina to take part in a big statewide sailboat race that day. Had to drop out of the race because of trouble with the sailboat's rudder system. And so late Saturday night when Highway 16 was still just a two-lane road coming into Charlotte, they were coming down Highway 16 pulling that boat. And there were two boys out in their souped-up cars racing. The nurse getting off from one of the Charlotte hospitals downtown, she said when those boys came around her, they had to be doing way over 100 miles an hour. And the one in the souped-up Mustang Mach 1 decided going around the blind curve, he was going to go out in the oncoming lane and he was going to pass his buddy and win the race. And in that blind curve, he came up and hit Dave and Marie head on. Killed them both instantly. 
Don wanted to see his son's car. My dad took him to see his car. Dad said he'd never seen a car like that before. The steering column of the car and the dash of the car was literally poking out the back window of the car. Two young people's lives snuffed out. Those are the kind of trials that people go through in a fallen world. And some of you have either been through trials like that or you know people who have. How in the world can we stand up to life storms? What can we learn from Paul? First, and I want you to write this down, Paul knew that God was with him. An angel had appeared to him. And God had earlier said, Paul, you're going to Rome. Folks, we may not have an angel appearing to us, but we have what the New Testament says is an even more sure word. We have the very word of God. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He had told them that in this world they were going to have tribulation, but he gave them the great commission, and he said to them, Guys, I'm going to be with you even till the end of the age. Every child of God is promised that God is with us. That makes a huge difference going through the storm. Maybe a sense of God's presence has quieted you in the midst of a storm and given you that perfect peace that passes all understanding. Secondly, Paul also knew that he belonged to God. Paul had said in one of his speeches, the God whose I am. Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus and gloriously converted him. And so Paul essentially is saying, hey, I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm bought with a price. Folks, if you know you're God's, then your life is God's business to look after. And that was Jesus' point in Matthew 6, 25 and following when he said, don't be anxious about everything. What you're going to eat and drink and wear and what you're going to do in your life, the Father knows what all you need. If he cares for the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air, you're much more valuable than they are. You're his child created in the, in, in the image of God. He can look after the life he created and it belongs to him. And so Jesus said, that frees me and you up to be after God's business. If we're, if we're looking after God's business, seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, Jesus said, then the Father will look after your business. A third assurance Paul had was that God's business with Paul wasn't done yet. Again, God had said, Paul, you're going to Rome. You are going to testify of me in Rome. Well, folks, he's not in Rome yet. I'm not trying to be silly by what I'm fixing to say, but I believe, had, had those people thrown Paul even overboard in the midst of the Mediterranean, you know what God could have done? God could have done with Paul exactly what he did with Jonah. He could have made a big fish to swallow him up, and, and Paul would have had first-class accommodations all the way to Rome. If you're in the will of God and you haven't finished what God's given you to do, you hang in there and be encouraged. Folks, there's an important principle here. God is greater than our circumstances at the moment. 
Will he deliver you? Will he heal you? Maybe, maybe not. If he doesn't, guess what? He'll give you the strength you need to endure through it. Paul says in Romans 8, 31, If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for you, who can be against you? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't need an answer. Obviously, nobody can be against you if God is for you. Do you live with that kind of peace? I hope so. Fourth thing I want you to see. From chapter 28, a Christian using his circumstances to further the kingdom of God. Malta is a little island just below Italy, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, 17 miles long by nine, by, by nine miles wide. Now, there was a main harbor that ships used. That's not where this group landed. The storm blew them into the island by another way. Today, if you were to travel to the island of Malta, there is a bay called St. Paul's Bay. There it is on the screen you're looking at this morning. That is modern day St. Paul's Bay. Traditionally, it's the bay where all 276 persons on that battered ship swam ashore. In Malta, they even have a national holiday every year. February the 10th, every year in the nation of Malta, their holiday is St. Paul's Shipwreck Day. I'm serious. Now notice they get there, Paul gets bitten by a viper. Today if you visit Malta, there are no poisonous vipers. Sounds like a pretty good place to go, doesn't it? With the population explosion, they've all been killed off and driven them out. But in ancient times, they were there. The islanders knew this, and they knew that what bit Paul was one of those vipers. Now I want you to notice the sense of justice that even pagans sometimes have it's exactly what Paul talks about in the book of Romans sometimes those without the law have the law written on their hearts how? because God put it there they figure this prisoner here must be really 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 bad in their way of thinking, they would have said the gods, whoever the gods were in pagans' mind, the gods were going to kill them all in a shipwreck. They survived the shipwreck, but this guy is so bad that the goddess justice, the word Luke uses is the Greek word for, for the pagan goddess justice. Justice guy. He got away from the sea, but justice, she finally got him. He's so bad, he couldn't get away. Then when he doesn't die, they change their tune. He's not bad at all. He's a god. That's not the first time in the book of Acts that Paul was viewed this way. Then the ruler of the island puts all 276 up and Paul lays hands on his sick father and prays and Publius's father is healed. Now on Malta there was a dreaded fever people got from bad goat's milk. 
it's believed that's probably what Publius' father had. Again, Paul prays for him. He's healed. Then they start bringing all of their sick to Paul over the course of three months, and he lays hands on them, and they're healed. It was a common theme in the early chapters of the book of Acts that God confirmed the truthfulness of the disciples' message of the gospel with signs and wonders and healings. That's what God is doing again in this text. Notice the result of this. They treat Paul and his fellow travelers royally. When they get ready to leave three months later, they shower them with good things, with with provisions to be able to leave. Tradition says that the island's leader, Publius, became a believer and became the pastor of the church there that was planted during that three months that Paul was on Malta. He discipled Publius and left Publius as the elder, the pastor of that church. Paul finally gets to Rome. When they land in Italy, they have to continue through various places till they finally get to Rome. Notice some of the believers, when they got word, Paul being in Italy, they journey from Rome down to meet him. And once in the city of Rome itself, the capital of the whole Western world back then, the most powerful city at the time on the face of the earth, Paul was allowed to live in his own rented quarters, chained to a soldier. He had freedom to have guests and to write and to preach. Now, folks, notice he didn't complain about his house arrest. He used it for the glory of God. This afternoon, you can read all about this in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, verse 12 and following. Paul writes to the Philippians because they hear about his house arrest. They're worried about him and he writes to the Philippians and he says, I want you to understand something, that what has happened to me in Rome is for the good of the gospel. He says, I'm chained to some of the most, the, the praetorium guard, Caesar's, the, 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 the household, the emperor's guard, his, his elite guard. I, I'm chained to them day and night. I've got a captive audience. They think I'm the captive. They're ca- I've got a captive audience. And he's preaching to some of the most powerful men in the city of Rome, the most powerful city of that day. Paul says to the Philippians, don't you be grieved for me. Don't you worry about my circumstances. I'm not complaining about my circumstances. God is using them to get the gospel out. Paul did something else this two years in captivity. He wrote the prison epistles or the captivity epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Folks, think about how our Bibles would be less without those four books in our New Testament. During that two years, Paul wrote those books. Did God use his circumstances? You better believe it. Paul set free after two years. Most likely his accusers from Jerusalem never bothered to make the journey there and show up. Under Roman law, your accusers had to show up and face you in court with their charges. Also, the Romans had a two-year statute of limitations. If they didn't show up in that two years, Paul would have been set free anyway. Now, Nero... 
Nero would become kind of a crazed emperor a little bit later on. A couple years down the road, Paul's going to be rearrested. This time not under house arrest. He's going to be put in a cold, dark dungeon in Rome. And Nero is going to have his head chopped off. That's the background of 2 Timothy. But this first imprisonment, Paul's under house arrest and free to preach the gospel. And again, you got to love the way that Luke ends this book by saying he preached the gospel unhindered. Don't you love that? Unhindered. Difficult circumstances, but he preached the gospel unhindered. You say, but preacher, this morning you don't understand what my circumstances are. Listen, I do know this. There's not a one of us in here yet chained and in prison. What, what is God doing in your current circumstances? How are you using your current circumstances to glorify God? I told you a story Two and a half years ago, I think it bears repeating. And after I tell you, you'll, you'll see why. Dr. Paige Patterson, the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, tells the story of when he was a young man just beginning his ministry there in Texas. He was invited to South Texas to preach a revival one week at a church, which the church in South Texas for back then, he said it was a pretty big church. When he got there, the preacher said, Paige, be ready in the morning. I'm going to take you around to the home of a woman confined to her bed, and she will pray for you. Paige said he thought to himself, well, if she is bound to her bed, she doesn't need to pray for us. We need to go and pray for her. He said in his youthful ignorance, he also thought, you know what? I'm here to preach a revival this week. We need to go out soul winning tomorrow. Why are we going around to a, a woman who's a shut-in and an invalid? Let's get out and do some soul winning instead. He said, well, we got her house and the preacher did the unthinkable. Something my parents had raised me better than to do. He knocked on the door and walked right in. My daddy had taught me you walk in somebody's house without permission and you might be walking out in a big time hurry. But he walked right in and I followed him. And if that wasn't bad enough, the preacher called out and walked down the hallway and right into the woman's bedroom. Paige said, we turned the corner into her bedroom and there she was, confined to a bed, 35 years of age, the victim of a drunken doctor's botched delivery of her at birth that had left her completely paralyzed. The preacher said, Dorothy Fay, I wanted you to meet our revival preacher for the week and have you pray for him and for the services. Well, Paige said, we visited with this lovely, sweet, godly lady about 15 minutes and finally she said, well, let's pray. Paige said when she started to pray, he had never, ever, ever in his life heard anybody talk to God this way. He said, it's like, Miss Dorothy Fay and her prayer had reached up and grabbed a hold of that torn curtain into the Holy of Holies and held it open and the glory of God shone right into that bedroom. He said most powerful 
prayer life I've ever witnessed in all of my life. He said, I must confess as a young man, knowing that God, knowing that God is, is not an image we can look at, God is spirit. He said, yet I found myself opening my eyes and peeking because I was sure that God himself was standing in that room. He said, she got done praying. Paige said, I asked her, Miss Dorothy Fay, would you pray for me like that every day? And she said, no. <laughs> he said, what do you mean, Miss Dorothy Fay? She said, well, Paige, if you'll hand me that big notebook over there with my calendar in it, I'll tell you why. And he opened it up, and it was her calendar for 18 hours a day, seven days a week. 18 hours a day, seven days a week, in 30-minute increments, there were people in her notebook all over the world that she was praying for and events that she was praying for. And she said, Brother Paige, my notebook's filled up. But if you can find a block in there that's empty, you're welcome. Put your name in there and I'll pray for you. He said he feverishly looked through that. He said he came to a blank, a 30-minute save. He said, I wrote my name in that block big enough that she could have seen it from four rooms away. He said, we got outside leaving. And I turned to that older pastor. And I said, Pastor, what in the world did we just experience? And he said, Son, that's why I wanted to bring you here. I wanted you to see a lady's life who's so in touch with God, who lays in her bed 18 hours a day, and she's a prayer warrior, and heaven comes down when she prays. And I wanted you to learn that as a young preacher. He said, Paige, that's not all. Last year, we baptized 150 people in our church. And he said, 102 of those. He said, we know this because we sat down, we interviewed them, we taught them. We know that 102 of that 150 were a direct result of the prayers of Miss Dorothy Fay. And he said, it goes further than that. Five of those 102 we talked to had no idea who this lady was, that she was praying, didn't know who we were, that we were praying for them. They said that they were out driving down the road in her neighborhood and they got up to her house and they said, we never experienced anything like this in all of our life. But when we got up on the street next to her house, God told us to turn in that driveway and go knock on that door. Five of that hundred and two said, we walked up to the door. Knocked. This lady called us to come in. We came in, called us back to the bedroom. And there in her back bedroom herself, she personally led us to faith in Christ. What are your circumstances? Are you using your circumstances as an excuse Paul, two-year captivity, chained. The gospel was unhindered through his life. And he wrote four books of our New Testament. Miss Dorothy Fay laying in a bed 
18 hours a day a prayer warrior and God using her in mighty ways. I can tell you my circumstances and your circumstances aren't that bad. What are your circumstances this morning? You and I need to quit complaining and quit using excuses. And like Paul, we need to live a captured life. Captured by the grace of God. Maybe this morning you need to come to this altar and say, God, I've been complaining about my circumstances and using excuses. But God, today I want to surrender my circumstances up to you and say, God, I, I, I don't see the purpose in them. I don't understand. But God, you do. Whatever you want to do with my life from here on out, God, I'm yours. I surrender to you. Is that what you need to do this morning?